This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hodgkins, and today we're talking about faults in the Earth. These are fractures or discontinuities in a volume of rock that accommodate movement. More specifically, we are talking about faults in the needle section of Canyonlands National Park with geophysicist Alba Rodriguez Padilla. My name is Alba Rodriguez Padilla. I am a PhD candidate at the University of California, Davis. You can call me a PhD student or a PhD candidate. I'm a bit of a, of a mix of a geologist and a geophysicist that looks at the distribution of the formation from earthquakes and then alone faults in the long term. Yeah, so you're working, you know, basically studying, you study fault systems, earthquakes, things like that. So can we just start by describing sort of the physical mechanics of what a fault is? You know, what is happening when a fault occurs? Yeah, absolutely. Basically, a fault is a discontinuity that moves, that accommodates movement. The largest version of that is entire plate boundaries, say like the San Andreas Fault. And the smallest version of that can be a small crack that is a few meters long and has accommodated some motion along it. What are some of the ways that uh, you and uh, other geophysicists study these faults and, and actually why study them? We really care about faults because the way they move is typically, though not the ones in Utah, <laughs> through earthquakes. And earthquakes are pretty destructive. So by studying faults, we can understand the past record of earthquakes and start thinking about the future record of earthquakes. And we can use that information for hazard. We give that information to insurance companies, to governments, and it, it goes from there. So, How do you study them? What physically are, do you do when you study the faults? Well, I, in my, in my work in particular, I sometimes study faults from field data. So I put my boots on, I go on the ground, and I look at faults in the field. I look, I look at the crack itself. We look at the texture. We look at the deformation around it. We look at the record of past earthquakes around it. Sometimes we look at faults from remote sensing. So that may be something as simple as looking at them from Google Earth so we can know where they are and we can look at the landforms associated with them. And sometimes we go beyond real faults and we make fake faults in numerical models so we can understand the physics that drive how faults behave. It sounds like you've worked all over the world in your undergraduate and graduate studies. But today I wanted to focus on your work in Canyonlands and what we're calling the needles fault zone. Mm -hmm. So the Graben section, and for our listeners, uh, the needle section of Canyonlands National Park. So basically between Chesler Park and the river is a series of faults and creates kind of some upthrown fault blocks and downthrown fault blocks. So the earth is going up and down, up and down, all the way down to the river. So let's start with talking about these. Why, why does this series of faults exist right here in, in the needle section? Right. That's a, that's a great question. And, you know, for geologists, it's a bit puzzling. It's, it's not a plate boundary. It's in the middle of the continental U.S. So why would you, ha why would you have faults there? And the reason is because 
the Colorado River has cut into a layer of salt that's at the bottom. It's, it's at the base of the sandstone unit that's exposed all over Utah and gives us those beautiful red and beige colors. And what happens once the Colorado River cuts into this salt layer is that the salt is dissolved and it begins to flow towards the river. And as the salt flows towards the river, it drives the formation on the rocks that are sitting on top of it. And that deformation it what gives rise to faulting in the needles. That subsurface flow of the salt is also giving rise to the needles themselves. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. As I understand, you are actually uh, mentoring the and undergraduates in studying these faults. But what what were you trying to understand about the needles fault zone? So there's something very special about how these faults behave. And because that flow at the subsurface is constant, it gives rise to constant motion on the faults. So the faults of the needles don't have individual earthquakes. Instead, they're constantly moving very, very, very slowly. Always, they never stop moving. They move at a constant rate. There's been instruments placed on the faults. These are called creep meters that let us see how they're in fact moving constantly. And this is very special because most faults move through earthquakes. So by looking at faults that move constantly through fault creep, which is how we call this kind of motion, it helps us understand what parts of faulting are associated just to motion on the fault and not necessarily to like the dynamics of earthquakes. So in other words, you're understanding uh, basically the constant motion along the fault gives you some ideas of Fault mechanics? Is that exactly. It gives you an idea of what parts of fault mechanics are not related to earthquakes. So, so other faults in places that have earthquakes may also move a little bit aseismically or, or through fault creep. But we have no way in the geologic record of distinguishing what features are associated with this motion that's not from earthquakes. Whereas at the Needles District, all motion and all features are associated to this fault creep. So we can use that as, as a distinguishing field site. And then we can apply what we learn from looking at the faulty needles to faulty other locations that have much more complicated histories because they also have earthquakes. And you said you, you actually placed monitors out in the field. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that, well, that, that's instrumentation that's placed and maintained by the USGS, but it's a public record. Oh, okay. And is that, that's available, you can actually uh, find that online somewhere? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do have one data set that was collected under a grant for myself, and that is a LIDAR data set. Uh, LIDAR data is collected by airplanes. Basically, the way it's collected is an airplane flies very low and it shoots a laser at the landscape and the laser returns and it gives you the spatial coordinates of every point it shoots at. So you end up with this sort of grid that tells you the latitude, longitude and elevation of a point. And by putting that grid together, you can get this very high resolution view of the landscape. It looks like a very high resolution map. And the LIDAR data for the needles was collected, I think it was three years ago, by the National Center for Urban Laser Mapping uh, for a grant to my research group. So that's data we've contributed to the area. Oh, so you you collected that data. 
I'm guessing it's one of the most detailed topographic map you could get. Is that space? Yeah, something like it that? is. It, it is exactly. Yeah, it's the most uh, the best vertically resolved data set and also horizontally resolved for the area. This is also public data that anyone can look at. So you have you had the LIDAR and you had all the instrumentation that is out on the ground by the USGS. Mm-hmm. And I guess you were putting that all together to better understand fault mechanics through creep. So I'm I'm imagining this is this is ongoing, like they're still they're continually creeping. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Neat. And what does that mean for, I mean, do we, can we visually see any of that change or is it just too small to detect? We can. Actually, uh, one of the ways we've been able to look at this change is from satellite time series. So these changes are very subtle to observe on a daily, even a yearly basis. But satellite data is collected around the Earth every few days for years. So there's this very long-term record. And there was a paper that came out in 2007 that looked at, uh, I think it was about 10 years of deformation at needles. And they were able to measure the deformation over those 10 years throughout the whole array of faults. So that's something that we can see from space. We just need a record that spans a few years because deformation is very subtle. So it takes a few years to build up enough that we can measure it at the current resolution of satellite data. Right. And I guess you're really only seeing a horizontal change. It's probably hard to see a vertical change. Actually, most of the deformation at needles is vertical because they are normal faults. Okay. You can see that change. That's good. It's really neat. Yeah. Yeah. And so the the grobbins or the, 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 the series of faults going down the river are constantly moving. What about the needles themselves that are sit, sitting just further away from the river? Are they, is the Cedar Mesa formation, is that continually moving as well? I think that that area just has fractures, but no fault. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that section just has fractures, but but there are no faults. Right. Okay. No, so, sure. so it's only the faulting. And, and from what I understand, uh, that all that fault movement stops at the Colorado River. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So we're talking about these fault distribution in the needles. What, what have you learned from, from studying all this, uh, monitoring these faults? Yeah, so this is ongoing, ongoing work. And a lot of this work has been done by undergrad students that have collaborated with me either through UC Davis, which is my institution, or through the Southern California Earthquake Center. And what uh, these students did was they used a a combination of satellite imagery and LIDAR data. And they mapped a lot of small fractures that are distributed around the faults. And then we looked at the orientations and the density of those small cracks to understand the mechanics of the bigger faults. So one of the things that we found that's pretty interesting is that there's this gradient in fracture density from the Colorado River outwards in the needles, that fracture density directly correlates with the deformation intensity we measure from the satellite data. So you can see that what we see from satellite data, it's also imprinted in the geologic record of these faults. Deformation intensity can directly be measured from the landscape through these changes in fracture density. Okay, so, uh, just clarify for me that the, the faulting intensity is greatest 
great as the Colorado River and it decreases with distance away from it. Okay, very interesting. And you can see that in a small scale in fracture density. Yeah, you can see that because the fractures around a fault are, are showing you the formation field of the fault. They're responding as the fault moves, it stresses the surrounding volume to it and it cracks. So the cracks are directly telling you about the motion on that fault or, or the distressing conditions on that fault. And have you been able to use this kind of analogy other places in the world where it's not as easy to see? Uh, we, we do use fracture density to understand flow mechanics pretty frequently. We haven't used it. We have, I typically don't see patterns that are as clean as we see in needles. Another place we've looked at is the Moab fault, actually. Oh, nice. And what have you studied there? The same, we did the same kind of work. We mapped fractures at very high resolution and then looked at patterns in orientation and density. Oh, neat. Found similar patterns to those in needles. Uh, whether the mob fault is a seismogenic, that, that means whether it hosts earthquakes or if or a creeping fault has also long been a subject of debate. Oh. Um, it looks pretty similar to needles, which definitely makes a good case for the creeping hypothesis. I mean, ultimately, that fault going into Spanish Valley is kind of a result of salt movement as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There is some part of it that's driven by salt tectonics, which is what we call this salt dissolution driving the formation. But I think people have argued in the past that it also used to have earthquakes. Yeah. And so did you find that one part of the fault First of all, is the fault still moving, the Moab fault? Do you know that? I don't know that. And I don't know if anyone has tried to measure the formation over time there with satellite data in the way it's been done for needles. Right. And I mean, did you find that the fracture intensity was greater at one end of the fault or? Yeah, it was greater at that. So, so basically uh, the Moab fault is causing this whole volume of rock behind it to warp and fold. So the fracture density is the highest where the fault is, and then it decreases with distance away as the rock gets folded less and less and less. Yeah, that makes sense. Neat. What else, I mean, what else have I missed? What else can you tell me about the, the needles fault zone and the work there? So something we found uh, that's interesting is that it seems like a lot of the fractures that we've mapped may have existed before the needles fault faults started doing the work in the area, started moving. But those fractures get reoriented and get activated again as uh, in response to fault slip. So there are these cracks that may have been in the landscape for thousands, millions of years. And then once the faults start moving, these cracks suddenly start responding to the motion of the fault. So we can look at these like subtle rotations and changes in density of a pre-existing fabric to understand what the last few centuries to thousands of years of movement of the needles okay. have looked like. Can you nail down when the timing of the, be the beginning of the, the, the Graben fault movement? Not with our work, but I think it's something that has been looked at. And it's, it's clearly post, uh, is it clearly? It should be clearly post uh, the Colorado River. Yes, it, the, definitely the, the onset, the earliest onset of it is the moment the Colorado River cats through that salt layer. Right, gotcha. 
And so what, what projects are you working on currently in your, uh, your PhD study? Yeah, there are a few things I work on. The most recent thing I have wrapped up is looking at surface fractures from the 2019 Ridgecrest earthquakes in Southern California. So it's, it's a similar approach to that in needles. We use this very high resolution aerial imagery and we mapped fractures from it. And then we looked at the distribution of fractures to learn something about the physics of the earthquake. I guess another interesting, if this is not Utah related, but another interesting project I've worked on during my PhD is we looked at the frequency at which earthquakes jump between the San Andreas and the San Jacinto Faults in California. Oh, neat. Yeah. And to do that, we, lo- we, we used a combination of paleo seismology. So we looked at dirt that's cracked from earthquakes and used little chunks of charcoal to date when that dirt was cracked. And then we also made numerical models to understand the, the physical conditions that enable those earthquakes to jump from one fault to the other. And what is the, the frequency? I mean, how much are they jumping between the two faults? About every 600 years or about 20%, a little bit over 20% of the earthquakes uh, on each fault are shared. Wow. Very yeah, so, so about one-fifth of the time that the San Andreas Fault has an earthquake in that portion of California, in Southern California, that earthquake jumps onto the San Jacinto Fault or vice versa. And well, how, I mean... Do you understand why that's happening? <laughs> well, uh, so I, I think the most, uh, the simplest case in which this happens is because the San Jacinto Fault ends. The San Jacinto Fault ends slightly north of the LA Basin. But if the earthquake still has energy to go, the San Andreas Fault is close enough and it's favorably oriented enough that that earthquake may jump and continue propagating along the San Andreas Fault. So I think, I think the simplest case of this is the San Jacinto Fault ends, but the earthquake still has gas, so it just jumps. Okay. So the movement is never initiated in the San Andreas. There, uh, people have modeled the, the reverse jump, so earthquakes that start on the San Andreas and jump onto the San Jacinto. Uh-huh. And those are also physically possible, but we don't have a geologic record of those happening. Our geologic record favors starts on San Jacinto, jumps into San Andreas. Alva, thank you so much for talking with Science Moab and uh, enlightening us on the, uh, the Needles Fault Zone. Yeah, thank you for having me. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher, newsletter by Rhonda Cook, our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.